You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. All right, so our focal passage this morning is John 19, verses 1 through 16. Um, Feel free to turn there in your Bibles. If you do need a Bible, there are Bibles at the Connect desk for you. You can ask, and they'll get one for you. All right, John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me from you, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out always with him, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. You all can be seated, and any children here can be dismissed to classes. Good morning. My name is Michael. I am one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. I don't normally dress like this. I have a wedding to uh, officiate just after this. Which leads me to the second thing I wanted you to know. If you're a guest, I, man, I love to connect with you if you've never been here. Um, normally, I kind of hang out over there afterwards, but today, I got to just like split, and so I would love to connect with you. I just can't do that today unless you'll be at the wedding. So <clears throat> uh, let's pray. God, thanks for this, the beauty and simplicity of your people gathered together, singing to you and about you and praying and being dependent upon you and, and encouraging and building up and, and, and praying together and the discipleship that's already had uh, happened here today and people learning about what it looks like to sit under your word and, and right now kids being discipled to know you and trust you and, and to behold your word and, and would you just let us do that today as I have the privilege um, to just open this book and, and talk about you and talk about how we fit into your plan and to look at our suffering servant king 
Jesus, would you transform our minds, our hearts, and our lives today by your word and by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. London. Britain's Charles III was crowned king on Saturday, that's just yesterday, during an 8th century ritual in a 21st century metropolis with a handful of concessions to the modern age. But the unabashed pageantry of a fairy tale unseen since the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, his mother, in 1953. I came not to be served, but to serve, Charles said in his first remarks of the ceremony. Settling the theme uh, in the intimate yet grand proceedings. Uh, The king, 74, was anointed with holy oil, symbolizing the sacred nature of his rule. He was vested with an imperial mantle in the Archbishop of Canterbury. This all just sounds made up. The Archbishop of Canterbury placed the ancient crown of St. Edward onto his head. That's what happened yesterday. The people first, like what a, what a mantra, the, the mark of a true king. Uh, and the difficulty and the intention of saying that, hey, I, I didn't come here to be served, but I came to serve. The difficulty in that intention or that remark, it isn't to say those words. The difficulty is to stand with honor when you have all the power in the universe and the people treat you like a servant. That's the difficulty. And one of the most overwhelming attributes, attributes of, of God, certainly revealed in Jesus in these passages that, we, that we've been looking at in John and today in chapter 19, is his ability to endure and suffer for greater gain. He came not to be served, but to serve. And when we think of power, like when we just say the word power, like you want to like make fists because it sounds, you know, it sounds tough. When we think of power or authority or rule or reign or, or unbridled decision making, like none of us have that. And you might have that in some small pocket of your world. But when we think of those things, unbridled decision making, we usually think of evil and its ability to destroy The idea of unchecked balance is frightening because of all the atrocity suffered through wicked hands throughout all of history. And yet, here, we see the king of all kings, Jesus, fully God, fully man. He has no balance of power, none. There there is not a, a counterbalance to his rule and reign. Uh, there, there was not an anti-hero in this picture that can stand against him. And we watch, we watch him quietly suffer with divinely determined purpose. What we see today is, is a true king uses his authority to benefit his people. That's what a true king does. Now look, that doesn't mean that he gives them what they want. God knows we want things that are not best. And if you didn't know that was true, follow a three-year-old around for three seconds. And and that's not just true for three-year-olds. That's true for for 30-year-olds and 
and all of the year olds, that, that we want things that are not best. And yet, Jesus, he understands his assignment to the point of death because he knew that we needed a bridge between God and man and he was the only one who could bear that crossing. We're gonna look at this passage in kind of three chunks today. And the first one is this. It's, it's Jesus endures misguided mockery. I wanna start reading in verse 19. I'm just gonna read one through five. Then Pilate, remember he's the, the Roman governor kind of uh, in charge. He's the, he's the man in charge, the highest level of authority that we actually get to see in the scene. Then Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. It's so tough to get the tone and, and try to figure out what's going on here, but, but what we see is, is this, this guy, and he's going back and forth because the Jews can't go inside because of their kind of ritual of the day, and so he's, he's coming out, he's talking to the Jews, and they're trying to uh, have him destroyed, and he goes back in, and he talks to Jesus, and we see these terrible things happen to Jesus at the hand of the soldiers. See, it's, it's difficult to stomach abuse, it's difficult to stomach power dynamics that play out in cruel, abusive, evil ways. And for many, our, our first public interactions of, of group power dynamics is, is in school or on, on the playground, like playground stuff. And, and we see mean words. And they do great harm. And we see the mob mentality. It's like baked into the worst parts of humanity. We see it here in this passage. And undoubtedly, you've seen it in your life. Certainly, we see it uh, depicted in, in lots of, of story forms all around us. So kids are so mean that, that nursery rhymes are invented surely to help parents ease the sense of pain for victims. So we, things, so we say things like this, like, Sticks and stones, they can break our bones. But words, they can never harm us. And that feels good. And maybe that can get you through some tears or get you through a moment. But we know that that's, that's not true. We know that words hurt. And do you know what else hurts? Sticks and stones and, and, and whips with bone and, and metal fragment braided in. And, and being misunderstood, that hurts. And, and being the sinless son of God, yet bearing the brutality of, of mockery and abuse for crimes that he didn't commit, but for crimes that others committed, even his enemies, the exact ones who are causing him harm. All of those things hurt. All those things cause pain. The mockery that we see here, he was flogged, it says. Like, we use that word all the time, right? He was flogged. He was, he was put, uh, put on him was a crown of thorns. You say you're a king, and, and just 
like, how did that happen? That wasn't a part of the ritual of what's going on. And, and my only, like, the only way I can, I can see how we would get there would be some soldiers, like, hanging out and, like, hey, hey, what are you doing, Larry? Sorry if your name's Larry. You're not a villain. Hey, what are you doing, Larry? And then I'm like, oh, dude, you're going to love this. Like, just imagine, like, making something like, oh, he's, he's a king. He said, let's make him a king. Hey, hey, don't we have, isn't one of those, like, a, a purple robe back in the old uh, closet over there that we used to use for, oh, yeah, go get, like, that's how this had to happen. It wasn't part of what's happening in the court. It was, it was people just literally putting mockery on display. Hail to the king. Oh, this is going to be so great. This is going to be rich when we bring him out and they see him like this. They're going to love it. They dress him up, purple robe, false crown, and undoubtedly as they pressed it on him would start bleeding and, and, and they're playing dress up and pretend. And the Jews, that's not my king. And the Romans, that's not my king. And Pilate, I find him innocent. That's the worst. The worst. It's not like he, he signed up for this. It's not like he did the things that, that would require this type of punishment for, for him. In the ruling party, in the room, he even found him innocent. And he says, behold the man. And I kind of see Pilate as he's interacting with them. Like, he's almost like... <laughs> Like, you know, the, the little lute and the, the lyre, the guy's playing music over maybe in the side, like, just keep playing. Like, he's just trying to, like, be in control of the scene, and it's just out of control. And he doesn't know what to do, and yet he's the only one with the supreme authority in this, pl in this place. Behold the man, the big reveal. Man, maybe, maybe if they see him dressed up like this, they'll, we can just laugh this off, and I won't have to, like, but the response, crucify him kill him, one of our own countrymen, and not only kill him, but kill him in the most brutal way that, that man has contrived. That's what the crowd uh, yelled, and that's what the crowd wanted. He's one of them. He is a Jew, but not only he's the long-awaited, the one that they've been searching for, the one for generations they've been established in. All of the things that they do was looking forward for him, yet he finds himself rejected and shamed and discredited, misunderstood, and yet faithful. The scourgings that the Roman government administered as part of their legal system, there were three kind of types, three degrees, and the first one was Hey, like what we would call like a slap on the wrist and it was probably painful and yet they could walk out of the court hearing and, and they would be just fine. They weren't debilitated by it. The second one was a little more severe. And this third one was only for those who were being executed where they used the leather and, and the bone and the metal and they, they hit them 39 times as was custom because 40 would lead to death. So they did that until their bones laid bare and their entrails were exposed. They, they did that to beat them so that it might hasten their death on the cross so they could be home in time for dinner. So what? Here's the thing. Many of us probably know that. Like Jesus endured difficult things. Many have died. Many have died in, in, in other ways. Many followers of Jesus and many uh, of all different types have died in, in lots of different ways. And, and the church has long emphasized the brutality of the cross. Like, just look at it. And, and, and we see that, and, and it's, it's put on display in plays. I remember when I was like 
barely a Christian, maybe. I was like 13 or something. And the, the church I was a part of, we did like an Easter play. And, and I was Joseph of Arimathea. And I didn't know anything about the Bible or anything else. But I, I know a lot about Joseph now because, he, because I, I, like, I, I, I wore his robe. You know what I mean? And Joseph was the guy who like had the tomb like that, that allowed Jesus to be buried or whatever. And so we did that. And it was like, hey, look, this is terrible. And, and you see every year during Easter, certainly in Mexico and other places, they do like walking through the streets and they actually crucify people just to demonstrate this story and just to show how bad it really was. There's reenactments, but, but the goal in all of those things, it's, it's not for followers to, to merely feel bad for Jesus. And maybe that's what it's been like for you. But that's not the goal. It's not to merely feel bad for Jesus, to wince, to hate it, to look away, to shed tears, but, but not merely of those things, not merely because of physical pain, but because of why he's so committed to endure. And he's so committed to endure, man, as cliche as this might, might seem, because of love. Because of his love, not only for you, not only for the best, but for the worst and those who literally were causing him this pain so that he might demonstrate his love and that he might put God's glory, eternal as it were, on display. He, he endured mockery so that we know the depth of love our Savior, our servant king has for us. And, and, and secondly, Christ endured mockery not so that we invite it, Right, we don't get to look at this and be like, okay, if I do that, then I'm being faithful. And if I go to work and just tick off all my coworkers and they slash my tires, oh man, that's me being faithful. And if I'm a jerk to people and I use the word Jesus and I quote scripture at them and, and they don't like it, man, that's me following, that's me picking up my cross and following Jesus. That is not true. It's not an invitation to, to be a jerk or just to endure for endurance sake, but, but, it is so that we might be willing and equipped to endure faithfully with greater gains in mind. I want to read two passages of Scripture real quick. Uh, and there's a ton in them that we can't get to. The first one's 1 Peter 4, 1 through 5. It, it says this. Since therefore, so this is after this happens, Peter, one of the, uh, one of the disciples of Jesus who had rejected him, just the chapter before this, now finds himself faithful, leading the, the local church, and he, he writes letters to uh, the church to build them up, and this is what he says later on in his life. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. They've chosen something greater. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's what Jesus was doing. That's what we get to do in our suffering. That's what we get to do in our celebrations. We get to do the same thing. He goes on and he says, don't, uh, you know, for the time that, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And so the, the time is up for you living like you're not a follower of Jesus. And, and he goes on, he says, living in sensuality and passions and, and drunkenness and all kinds of things. And then he goes, with respect to this, they, meaning the world outside, they are surprised 
when you do not join them in the same flood of indulgence. He's saying the world around you, when, when you live in a way that follows this Jesus, the world will be surprised by the way that you live, that you don't live like them. And then he says, they malign you. Like they call you evil. And what it, what it means, he's, he's saying you'll, you will suffer. As a follower of Jesus, you will suffer socially for Christ's sake. And you might suffer in other ways, but they will, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Brother, sister, child, rest assured, it might not feel like it in the moment, but, but justice will roll down. And that will either happen on the cross for all who trust in him, or it will happen in their flesh for all who reject him. We read on Hebrews 11.35, right? In Hebrews chapter 11, it's, it's the hall of faith. You get to read like about the whole Old Testament, like in one little uh, chapter. And it, it talks about all the greatness and all the people that have done like faithful, miraculous things and all the ways that God had, had demonstrated himself faithful in response. Like it is such an encouragement. And it's like an Old Testament survey class in one chapter. Right? All these things, and, and, and God delivered them from the mouths of lions and all these things, and you're like, yes, that's what I want. And you're like, how could we ever die if this is the God that we serve? Like, we're just going to live forever. That's not true in this life, but it is true in the life to come. But then in all these things, God is faithful. His people are faithful. Look at all this. And then, like, the record scratches, and I want you to hear this. Women receive back their dead by resurrection, yes. Some were tortured, no. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us. Rich, we could talk about those things for hours. But I got to tell you, that's different than a me-centered invitation that following Jesus would make me rich, happy, healthy, and full. That looks different. I, I gotta tell you, that's different from a church existing for the, the worship experience that makes people feel safe and as if they are the center of the call to follow Jesus. We are not the center of the call to follow Jesus. Jesus is. That's, that's different than, than melting at the heat of social, cultural pressure in the name of God will deliver me from my trial. God will deliver me from the fire, from the furnace of mockery and ridicule. He has done that. He may do that. And ultimately, he will do that. 
but it may not look like you think. And it may not be in this life. Joni Erickson Tata says this, the, the invitation to know God, to really know him, is always an invitation to suffer. Not to suffer alone, but to suffer with him. Here, he suffers for us. He endures misguided mockery. And the second thing we see is Jesus corrects unqualified authority. Man, this book is our highest prize. And, and uh, I sat in the class that Pastor Scott taught this morning, the under the word class, and, and God is our highest authority. And the way that that shows up for us and the, way, the thing that unites us in that is, is this book is our highest authority. So we get to know what it says. But throughout the history of the church, the church has used other um, kind of uh, decision-making processes to help supplement and clarify. And those things are not ultimate, but they are helpful. And one of the things that the church has done is established creeds or confessions and in, even in the early stages of the, of the church, or the first few centuries of the church, they, they established creeds. And, and one of those creeds is the Apostles' Creed. And a creed just clarifies things. And there are some lines in that creed that reads this. In part, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. And it's so weird. It's so weird that, that Pilate even made it into the creed. Like Herod, he's trying to kill everybody all the time. Anybody with the name Herod, sorry if your name's Herod, all right? You are not a villain. You don't have to be. But throughout Scripture, gosh, there were some bad dudes. And, and Pilate is just kind of this guy that's just in the way on this day. It's so confusing. So, so why why would they even acknowledge Pilate in this creed? And, and the short answer is, I have no idea. But the answer that has been given by many theologians uh, of the church is that Pilate is, is mentioned in the creed because of the role that he played in the history of redemption. In the drama of the death of Christ, Pilate, he functioned as the, uh, the public authority in what's going on here. He was the one in the position of power, in the position of judgment. And so after his interrogation of Jesus and his back and forth with the Jews, he says, I find no fault in him at all. Yet Pilate turns Jesus over to the mob and he sentenced him to death. Why? Why did he do that? Why was he mentioned? He, he was motivated by a confused identity. And you can see it as you just read through. You're like, this dude was conflicted, right? This was man versus himself, and other factors, right, in literary world. Like, he's got stuff going on. He, he's fighting his own battles to be someone, to, to position himself as a worthy leader of Rome, to, to not be a pushover to the Jews that he oversaw, that he had jurisdiction over. And there was a, a ton of issues historically that got him to this place. And shortly after he took over, the Jews, they did like a five-day sit-in where they basically just said, we're not going to do anything that you tell us. And he's like, gosh, this is not a good way to start my rule in 
reign. And so there are like many instances where the Jews and Pilate had issue. And so they know that, and he knows that, and he knows that Caesar's probably like checking in on him. And so he's just trying to find himself and figure out what's going on. He doesn't want to be a pushover, but he has this responsibility and authority. So he, he helped allow Jesus' death to solidify his, his own identity if he only knew that the sure way to a true, unwavering identity was to trust the one that's offered in Jesus, the one he helps crucify. And in contrast, Jesus has nothing to prove. Nothing to prove. You, you imagine going to like a conference or something and you like wrote the book on whatever it is that everyone's there for and you know that everyone is like you, you have nothing to prove because you wrote the book on anything that's going on there. Like, like what's happening here is, is Jesus shows up. He has all things in his hand. He's known history ultimately all the way backwards, all the way forwards. He has nothing to prove within himself. He knows that, that he has always been, and yet he has everything to prove to those around him because they don't know that. They weren't there when he flung the stars. And what does he do? He lays down his authority, and he uses it to serve his people, not himself. Legan Duncan he says this uh, of Christ and what he has done. He says, Jesus was conscious that God's plan was being worked out and nobody, not Peter, not Judas who betrayed him, not the mob, not Pilate, nobody nor anyone else was going to keep that plan from being fulfilled. Jesus, he understood the mission. He understood the assignment, and he saw it through. We, we don't know why, but it was the way that he had to do what he did to gain us and all who believe throughout all time, backwards and forwards, to gain us a seat at the table with the family of God and with God for all time. Jesus, he has all authority, full stop. It's not granted, but it's from the beginning, and he uses it to serve his people. And, and sometimes that shows up the way that God serves his people. Sometimes it shows up, uh, he's a shining savior. Sometimes he's a, a mighty deliverer. In the Old Testament, we see God showing up in, in thunder and in flames and uh, in, in clouds. We see him show up in, in mighty, miraculous ways. We see Jesus showing up and controlling the weather Controlling uh, the laws of physics. Healing people who are sick. Controlling all of the biological sciences. Nothing is outside of his hands. He, he resurrects people from the dead. You can't do that. They don't come back. Sometimes it looks like that and sometimes it means laying down the authority to suffer and serve his people in costly ways for greater gain. And what of us? What does any of that mean for us? Well, when we get to behold that, 
and that might be enough. But for us, it, it, it's a complete joke to think that anyone on the planet, any being in the universe, has unconditional, ungranted authority. It's a joke. Hey, I'm in control here. Okay, you're a joke. That's the biggest encouragement I can give you today. Your authority is an absolute joke. Like, lay your head down on that truth tonight and breathe a little deeper. It doesn't take away your responsibility. It's a complete joke that Pilate clouts his authority. Here's what I mean. He says to Jesus, buddy, just say something. Don't you know who I am? And Jesus is like, oh, you're Pilate. I thought you said something else. Oh, the mighty Pilate, the one who flung the stars, the one who bound DNA. Oh, gosh. The one who actually understands how gravity works. Oh, Pilate. And Pilate's like, no, I'm, I'm actually just a Roman. None of that happened, all right? You get the idea. He says, don't you know who I am? I'm the one. Jesus, I'm the one who can free you. I'm the one who can convict you. And, and, and no, Pilate, you're not. You're, you're not the one that can do those things. And in earthly measures, sure. And when we have a sliver of authority in our own lives over whatever it is, we can use it to prove ourselves. We can use it to validate the voids inside of us. We can use that authority and power to show dad that, that we're good enough. We can use it to, to, to prove to mom that we, were, that we were good enough to put our former boss in her place, to show our kids that, that we're actually in charge for once, to pave our paths on our terms in our ways, to cower in fear, to power up. And some of you might hear these things and see these things and you've never had authority over anything in your life. You've never been in a, a management position or had any rule, and so it's all hypothetical, and you look at this and you say, oh, gosh. But, but it, it feels different when you have some power over something. So we get to reflect on that. We can do those things. We can live that way, or we can use our authority, whatever God has assigned for us, with all humility, with all wisdom, with care and preoccupation to put Christ's glory on display, to wear his garments with nothing to prove because Christ has approved us before the God of the universe. With him, we find the fullness of life and freedom to lead boldly, faithfully, and freedom to serve humbly and courageously. And you know what? You even have freedom to fail. You have the freedom to fail because we have one who didn't. Here we have a call not, not to compromise 
and, and think that there's a neutral way to relate with Jesus. Like, I'm not all in, but I'm not out either, and maybe I can just hang out in neutrality. That's not an option. But, but, but also a call to be bold in the identity that he alone gives us by putting us in the place of ultimate, not authority, approval. Ultimate approval in our relationship with the God of the universe. The one who created all things, the one who restores all things, the one who sustains all things. In front of him, Christ as our advocate, we stand. Not in shame, not in guilt, not, not being identified by all of our failures, but faithful, not because of us, but because of him. The last thing we see is that Jesus receives blatant hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. You know what one is when you see one, but you might not have known the definition, right? And there's a couple ways, but, but it's the practice of claiming to, to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. The word hypocrite that's one of those. That's one who does that. And it's rooted in this Greek word, Hippocrates. Kind of cool. It, it sounds nice to say. And, and that is back in the olden days, where there would be a, a stage actor who was a pretender. It was somebody that stood on the stage and they played a role that was not consistent with who they were when they were off of the stage. And many of you play that in your life every day. And my encouragement is, you don't have to do that. So the idea is very direct. It was an actor, a pretender. And most often it would be a man playing a woman's role, right, on the stage. And that would be a, a hypocrite. The one who's, 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 who's not who he is when he's not on the stage. When one who plays a part that isn't true to who they are. So we see... Uh, Jesus receive hypocrisy all around him. First Pilate, he sought to release him. Just think about that. Pilate's desire was to let him go. He sought to release him. Even he even declared him innocent. There's no, they're like he's good guys. Like he didn't do this or whatever. His conviction was was not to convict, but he's challenged in his conviction. And they say, gosh, they were, they knew, they were controlling him. Like they had a, a bridle uh, on him and controlling him wherever they wanted. If you release him, you're Caesar's enemy. That's what they, they shouted, the mob. Hey, he's good, guys. No, you're Caesar's enemy. Ugh, because like, that's like calling a McFly a chicken in Back to the Future world. Like you can't do that. And they're playing to his insecurity and his weakness. This is how coercion and guilt, uh, guilt motivation works. Put pressure on him in his weakness. 
And he said, behold your king. I think he's, I don't know if he's just stalling. I don't know what's going on here. He knew that he was not their king, according to them. He, he doesn't want to weigh in, and he does, and there's pushback, and he waffles back and forth. And then we see, gosh, the Jews respond to him. We have no king but Caesar. She's talking about hypocrisy. The Jews literally exist because they are the people of God. There was one nation throughout all time that that's true of, and it was these people. They knew that. They literally exist because they're the people of God. The, the, the foundation of the community, that it, the, their constitution was, have no other gods before me. Make, make no rulers or images that, that look like God. Make, make nothing in my name. Don't wear my name in vain. Like, wear it proudly and, and boldly. Their entire life, all of it is built around foundations laid out to their ancestors by God to his people, the Jews. Love God with all of your heart, with all of your strength and might and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love neighbor. And all the laws fall under those things. Jesus comes as the long-awaited king. Like in November and December, we look forward, we, we call that season Advent, where we're looking forward to Jesus coming again. And we look back to when he came the first time. They were looking the first time. They were looking forward like, where is he? And, and we search the scriptures and we've, we find these things that, that tell us who he is and, and yet we don't see him. But, but here he is right in front of them, the king of all kings, all authority in his hands. And rather than bow down and humbly worship him, they demand he die. In all of their life is hypocrisy. Man, I'm glad we're not like that, huh? Me and you? We've, we've all lived a life outside of what we were made to live. Paul tells the Ephesians in his letter in the second chapter, he says, you were once dead in sin and, and, and you walked in the way of this world and you, you followed the sons of disobedience and you were carrying out the desires of the flesh and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What he's saying is all of us once walked in darkness apart from him and you might say, man, I, I've known the Lord since I was a, a tiny child. And I would say, man, what grace. But as we came into this life, and, and some of you say, I walked away from him and, and lived as if he wasn't for, for 70 years, and yet here I am. This is true for everyone that we all once walked in darkness according to the way of this world. You were dead in our sins. We were dead because of sin, and we were trying to live an abundant life outside of him. Hip hypocrites. And the status of all of us was that, but God being rich in mercy because of his love, he raised us to life in Christ by grace. And so he pulled us into the family of God and we have been restored to live in light of genuine nothing to prove grace, love, and abundant life. 
And yet some are stuck. Having received a new wardrobe, having become a a new man, and the old man was gone, we, we have new clothes. We find ourselves day after day putting on the old clothes, the clothes of the dead man who died a permanent death by grace through faith in a dead Jesus who would raise to live to purchase us from death, from the just wrath of God, and to to bring us back into abundant life. Jesus, he's the recipient of fraud. And the Jews condemn him for sins that they commit, just like every one of us and the Romans, they allow it to happen to serve kings of the earth, approval, poll numbers, and, and power that comes from Caesar. And we follow him but we demand to lead. And all the while, Jesus, steadfast, fixed on the finish line, fixated with with faithful endurance to see his suffering through all the power in the universe to loose bonds, to break chains. He lays them down in righteous authority to grant us freedom of a genuine life. So there's this concept known as abdication. It's the act of a monarch or ruler voluntarily stepping down from their position of power. Many kings and rulers have done this for many reasons over the course of human rule and reign. I'll give you a few examples that you're probably most familiar with. In 1936, King Edward V1238 of the United Kingdom advocated the throne in order to marry his lover who was divorced. His younger brother, George VI, became king, followed by Queen Elizabeth, followed by our guy Charlie, who became king yesterday. In 2014, King Juan Carlos I of Spain abdicated the throne after nearly 40 years on the throne. His son became the new king. In 2013, Pope Benedict XV1, what is that, 16, right? The 16th abdicated the papacy, becoming the first pope to do so in nearly 600 years, citing his health as the reason for his resignation. In 1952, King Farouk I of Egypt was forced to abdicate the throne after a military coup. He was accused of corruption and mismanagement of the country's resources. Our favorite, as you all know, in 1873, King Amadeo I of Spain abdicated the throne after only two years as king, also riddled with political turmoil at the time, and he was unable to establish a stable government. None of those kings ruled the universe. None of those kings ruled with unlimited strength, reign, authority, jurisdiction. And and none of them laid down their authority with the ability to continue to lead. But Jesus, the king of all kings, he had all the power and ability to overthrow, to overcome, yet he endured faithfully. He laid down his power in the final moments of his life so that we might have all authority to live our lives 
making much of our King Jesus. I come not to be served, but to serve. Many may say that's their aim. Many might even, might even desire to do that. But only one lived that perfectly to his last breath on this earth. A true king uses his authority to benefit his people. And that's who we have in our King Jesus. We get to respond. We can do that lots of ways. Certainly want you to reflect and repent and respond. There will be some questions on the screen you can read over to internalize any of this stuff. You can sit right where you are. If you're not comfortable with anything else or if you're not able, you can stand, you can sing as the band comes on up. You can respond by praying. There would be someone back at that red tree. They would love to bear your burdens, whatever they are. And maybe it's you want to trust Jesus for the first time. And maybe it's, it's uh, something that the Lord has laid on your heart today in, in response to any of these things. We want to bear with one another in prayer, and we get to do that. You can pray over there by that prayer bench if you want some space by yourself to just kneel. And, and for those who are in Christ, we invite you to take communion or, or the Lord's Supper, to come to the table and, and grab uh, bread and juice and what that is, it represents uh, the body of Jesus that was broken for us and his blood that was spilled for us. And the Bible says, do this as often as you do in remembrance of me. So what we get to do is we get to remember that. And man, as we share this tiny little meal together, we get to declare that, right? If, this, if, if you're not in Christ, you've never come to the place where you said, yes, that is my life, and I know that I have a seat at that table with the Lord and all of his people for all time, man, this is not for you. The Bible's really serious about us not taking this in an unworthy manner, and while there's nothing special about these elements, there is something special about the process. And so this is not for you if you're not in Christ, but we are for you. We would love to chat with you Again, you can talk to someone at the prayer bench, at the connect desk, or just find somebody that looks like they know what they're doing around here, and they would love to chat with you about that. Would you pray with me, God? Thanks for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that you are a better king. Thank you that you had all the power in the world to just step down and not do what you knew you had to do. And you would have not had to suffer, and you would have... Let the people get what they deserve. But God, the terrible thing is, is we would have gotten what we deserve as well. Thank you for laying down your authority in this moment that would lead to your death and your death would lead to our abundant life. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.